Or is it really loud out there? Okay. All right, I want to bring a message on giving this morning. And, um, but um, I want to begin by saying that TCF is an incredibly generous church. Amen? Um, the elders continually marvel at this little church and how faithful you are to give. And so this is not about you're doing a bad job or we need more money. Um, it's given in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Hallelujah. And I want to bring just a brief apology. Uh, despite my disparaging remarks in the past about PowerPoint, uh, I have to say that this morning I overdosed. I, I just uh, really got into PowerPoint, and it was so fun. And I learned new little things to do, and so... Anyway, please forgive me for uh, how many slides I have. About 130. No, I'm... Okay, thanks. Um, sort of the outline of what I'm going to share, first of all, is a book review. Um, about 15 or 20 minutes on that. Then 15 or 20 minutes on uh, themes of scripture. And then um, an hour and a half of application points. So... Those of you who are against time frames love that. I want to begin with a review of a 2006 book called Who Really Cares? This is what it looks like if you're interested. Um, it's written by Arthur C. Brooks, who is a chaired professor of uh, business and government policy at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Uh, he describes himself as a skeptical political independent and as a Christian as well. He's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, and the findings of his research were contrary to his um, political and cultural roots. It's one of those stories where he set out to kind of prove his preconceived biases about people giving and who gives what, and it led him a, sort of the opposite direction and changed a bit of his worldview. Why should you believe what he has to say? Um, I, I, I included this quote from the beginning of his book so that perhaps you could buy into um, his heart and his integrity. He writes, in the coming chapters, I will explain why people give and why people don't. My explanations are based entirely on data. They are the fruit of years of analysis on the best national and international data sets available on charity, lots of computational horsepower, and the past work of dozens of scholars who have looked at various bits and pieces of the giving puzzle. My objective is to discover the facts about charity, whether they happen to conform to preconceived notions, others or my own, or to examine the data, um, or, excuse me, or not as revealed by the evidence. I consider it my job to examine the data, crunch numbers, interpret results, substitute, um, read statistics critically and accurately, never to substitute anecdotes for evidence and tell you a true story. So when I read that, I thought, this guy sounds like um, 
someone I can hopefully trust. All right, I decided to make it interesting and design a quiz for you this morning on material that you haven't read. And so, therefore, you can throw out to me answers as outlandish as you want, and there's no embarrassment here. So I want to bring you some facts about giving from this material. First question, which of these forces in modern American life are primarily responsible for making people charitable? Religion, skepticism about government in economic life, strong families, personal entrepreneurism, or all of the above? What do you think? I'm sorry? E, all of the above. Anybody else? A. Some other answer? Okay, the answer is all of the above. Give yourself a hand if you got that one. I want to just run through some of these points. Religious or religion in this book refers to the, the practice of any religion, not just Christianity, that is practiced, but it has to be practiced seriously, uh, as evidenced by attendance at a place of worship at least one time per week. Secularists are those who attend infrequently, a couple of times a year or never, or say that they have no religion. One of the interesting findings of the author is that simply the belief that the government should redistribute income dampens charitable giving whether the government is effective, effectively doing so or not. This is called by economists the crowding out principle. It's the idea that people think, well, if I give to the government and that they redistribute my income to the needy, then I need to give less. Strong families, according to the author, he's thinking of intact families and parents who model generosity, that children then are generous as well, whether it's volunteerism, missions trips, donating blood, giving money, those kinds of things. Personal entre entrepreneurism is the idea that certain charitable gifts and endeavors spark systematic change and sustainable rewards and value to a society. Let me give you a couple of examples of what that means. How many of you know about Paul Newman's um, salad dressings or food business, um, where he started, he started this food company not to receive personal gain, but to sponsor um, camps for at-risk kids. I think they're called hole-in-the-wall gang camps, and they're around the country uh, serving underprivileged kids. Another example would be um, our own Kids Hope. This was started by a church back in 1995, after a couple years of the church asking community leaders and the police and schools, what can we do to make a lasting impact among children at risk? And the answer that came back was help them learn to read and mentor them. Uh, Department of Justice studies suggest that if a, if a child learns to read and has a stable adult in their lives, that they are very, very, very much less likely to go to prison as an adult. And so Here's this, this thing has mushroomed beyond this single church uh, volunteerism in Michigan. And today, Charlene, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are something like 463 
churches in 27 states, uh, of which we are one, doing Kids Hope. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, wow. Also in Australia and even more, more churches than I cited. Charity, he defines as voluntary sacrifice for the good of another. Okay, question number two. Political liberals are more charitable than political conservatives. True or false? Any, anybody want to take true here? <laughs> All right, Brian, way to go. The answer, however, is false. Uh, when it comes to giving or not giving, conservatives and liberals look a lot alike. So whether you give, uh, the two look a lot alike. But this similarity fades away when we consider average dollar amounts donated. In 2000, households headed by a conservative gave on average 30% more money to charity than households headed by a liberal, uh, 1600 to 1227. This discrepancy is not simply an artifact of income differences. On the contrary, liberal families earned an average of 6% more per year than conservative families, and conservative families gave more than liberal families within every income class, from poor to middle class to rich. Which class of American society gives the greatest percentage of their income to charity? The working poor? the middle class, or the rich? Some say A, some say B. Nobody's saying C. C, we've got a few C's. Okay, this will surprise some of you. The answer is the working poor. Indeed, all the available data tell us that poor people contribute more of their household incomes than rich people do. Of course, rich people contribute the most dollars, but poor people contribute the, the greatest percentage of their income. Most studies have shown that the poor tend to give away between 4 and 5 percent of their income on average, and that the rich give away between 3 and 4 percent. Both groups give away significantly more than the middle class. People are more likely to give away earned income, however, such as wages, than they are to give away unearned income, such as welfare from the government. So we need to make a distinction in our mind between the working poor and uh, the welfare poor. On average, the working poor family gives away more than three times as much money to charity as the welfare family. Question four, what state gives the least to all types of charity each year? Hawaii, Nevada, Massachusetts, or Mississippi? Whoops. <laughs> how, many think, how many think it's Hawaii? <laughs> how many, does that surprise you? Would you have gone with something else? No, some say yes. Okay, let's, let's explore this. In a discussion about how religion versus secularism affects giving in various regions of the country, the author writes, where does the money go in more secular states? Not very far. Religious charity in the highly church states is not offset in the more secular states by non-religious giving. Consider Massachusetts, which, which has just .54 houses of worship per thousand residents, 48th in the nation. 
Its residents give away only 1.8% of their incomes to all types of charity each year, the lowest level in the nation. By contrast, Arkansas has about two houses of worship per 1,000 residents, the fourth highest level in the country. Residents give 3.9% of their incomes to charity each year on average, the fifth highest among the states. I wonder how Oklahoma would come out in that. I imagine we'd be very similar or even higher. Okay, religious people are scored to be more charitable simply because they are taught to regularly give to their own houses of worship, and when these gifts are included, it paints a false picture of charitable giving. Do you understand this? It, it, it's, it's the criticism that someone might make about religion or religious people donating more to charity uh, than secularists simply because the tithe is included. Um, or it's, they see it more as we're giving to ourselves to maintain an institution. See if this clears it up. True or false, do you think? False. A lot of smart people believe that religious giving and volunteering are not really charity. They are gifts to something like a club. When we look at gifts of time and money to explicitly secular causes, how do religious and non-religious people compare? Are the enormous giving differences wiped out? Not even close. Religious people are more charitable in every measurable non-religious way, including secular donations, informal giving, and even acts of kindness and honesty than secularists. Of these four groups, which gives the most to charity? Religious conservatives, secular conservatives, religious liberals, secular liberals. What do you think? A. Probably A or C, right? Want it to be A, some of us. The answer is religious conservatives, but not by much. Uh, of the four groups, religious conservatives are the most likely to give away money each year, 91%, although this level is not much larger than that of religious liberals. They give away the most dollars per year, you see the numbers there, per household in the country as a whole. Religious conservatives volunteer at a rate that is 10 percentage points higher than the population average, 67% per year. Contrary to public belief, religious conservatives are more likely to give to secular charities than to the overall population. In some, religious conservatives are as charitable or more so than any other part of the population, including to secular causes. Now, when I said not much more so, that's only in relation to um, religious liberals. Secular conservatives and secular liberals are way down compared to these other two groups. So you can see that religion has an incredibly powerful uh, effect on charity. Okay, people who favor government income redistribution are significantly more likely to behave charitably than those who don't. True or false? Okay, you would suspect from what we've already learned that it's false. Indeed it is. In 1996, a large sample of Americans was asked to respond to this statement, the government has a responsibility to reduce income inequality. 43% of respondents disagreed with this statement, 33% agreed. 
Sorry about the length of this quote, but it's, it's an important one. When it came to charity, these two groups were radically different. Not only were those who disagreed that government should redistribute income significantly more likely to give away money to charity than those who agreed, they also gave away, on average, four times as much money per year. This is not simply an artifact of religious giving. On the contrary, those who disagreed gave about three and a half times as much money per year to specifically non-religious charities as those who agreed. They gave more money to every type of cause and charity, health charities, educational organizations, international aid groups, and human welfare agencies. Those who disagreed even gave more to traditionally liberal causes, such as the environment and the arts. Um, this idea, this belief, is again called the crowding out effect. That's what economists call it. The author quips, for many Americans, political opinions are a substitute for personal checks. A bit of a, a zing there. Okay, religious people give less to their houses of worship during a recession. True or false? You guys are good. Reported, this, this, this uh, quote is from a different source than this book. It's actually from um, a, a journal put out by Summit Ministries, which is a ministry I'm sure some of you are familiar with in Colorado. Reported by the Giving USA Foundation, Giving went up in 2008 by 5.5% from 2007 levels to religious organizations. I think the reason religion does well during a recession is people feel an immense connection to their houses of worship. George Ruotalo, founder of mem founding member of Giving USA, said, they realize that houses of worship cannot go to corporations or foundations for support. They have to rely on the generosity of members. There is that connection in faith and mission. Now, I thought about 2008, and there was a lot of debate about were we in recession in 2008. And I went on the Internet and had to dig pretty deeply. It's kind of a hotly contested political argument whether we were in recession or not. Um, I, the best I could find is that the last two quarters we were, in fact, in recession. But um, just to... Just to drive this home, uh, during the Reagan years uh, of the 80s, um, charity, charity went way up when social programs were being cut. Uh, just a paragraph here. One philanthropy expert says, adversity is the mother of donation, noting that charitable giving rose by a third in real terms over the 1980s when President Reagan budgets were cutting spending on social programs. It's interesting, isn't it? We're getting toward the end, so hang in there. People who have children are more generous than people who don't. True or false? True. At the simplest level, families are good for charity because except in a few situations, such as single parenthood, People who have children are more generous than people who don't. We have already seen that charity is not just a byproduct of income or wealth. It is not primarily a financial phenomenon at all. Charity is a unique and transcendent human virtue that thrives on human love. Charity is a natural family value. 
That's interesting when you think about how expensive it is to raise children uh, over 18 to 30 years. <laughs> okay. The stereotype of the stingy American is a just view of American giving, a righteous perspective. In light of the amount of aid it gives to other countries, true or false? False. While government aid to other countries is often a lower percentage of GDP than other countries, the problem with this criticism is that it fails to take into account the disproportionately high level of private charity given by the United States. It is true that U.S. Official International Development Assistance, or ODA, is only about a tenth of one percent of GDP for the United States. However, this amount is accompanied annually by about 13 billion in other types of government assistance, about 16 billion from private sources, including foundations, religious congregations, voluntary organizations, universities, and corporations. Why do Europeans persist in their criticism of American generosity? One reason is that giving at the private level is a foreign concept to them. That's really true. In, in Europe, uh, giving to the needy is done through the government, and private, private giving, by and large, is absent. I mean, there is some, of course, but um, it's, it's, it's very um, sparse. In 1992, the United Nations had something called, they, they sponsored something called Agenda 21, where they said to developed countries, uh, we want you to shoot for seven-tenths of one percent of your GDP uh, going in humanitarian aid every year. And some countries like Germany and others have been able to achieve that, but the United States is still at one-tenth of one percent. But, but it's government aid as opposed to all aid. So that's why we are more generous. Two more questions. There is not only a statistical positive association between giving and income, but charitable giving actually pushes up income. True or false? I think you guys are guessing now. But you're right. This positive association is known by economists as the Rockefeller hypothesis. It is the reality that charity and prosperity are interconnected. More than that, the author goes on to assert something even more than that. We find that charity actually pushes up income, but income increases charity as well. Money giving and prosperity exist in positive feedback to each other and a virtuous cycle, you might say. Do any of you think of a verse of the Bible that might say something close to that? Yeah, Luke 6.38. Let's read that. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And we could also look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6, which says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap 
bountifully. And the last question, people who give to charity are generally healthier and happier than those who don't. True or false? True. The evidence shows that giving, especially giving in ways other than money, that's important to catch. You don't have to be um, wealthy or have a lot of surplus income to tap in to some of these principles goes along with happiness and health. One survey of Americans shows that people who give money charitably are 43% more likely to say they are very happy than non-givers. Consider two people who are identical with respect to religion, age, income, education, gender, number of children, marital status, and race, but one volunteers at least once a year and the other does not. On the average, the volunteer will enjoy greater happiness and better health than the non-volunteer. Volunteers are 9% more likely than non-volunteers to say they are very happy and 4% more likely to say his or her health is excellent. Well, I hope that there was something there that was interesting to you and uh, maybe surprising um, as well. But let's turn to what's really important, and that's the scriptures and the themes of giving on the script, uh, that the scriptures have. Previous has been doing a study um, forever on money, and um, we've been trying to build a theology of money uh, for ourselves, and I just wanted to highlight some of the principles or themes of scripture. The first one is that God is extremely concerned about and conscious of our treatment of the poor. How many of you have picked up that theme in Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs? He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. I think we're probably all guilty of seeing a poor man or a poor woman and jumping to conclusions about why they're poor. Um, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord, don't we? Uh, because God is extremely concerned about and conscious of our treatment of the poor. Second, we're to be generous in our giving. Amen? He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Instruct them to do... This, is, this second scripture is, is uh, pointed at Timothy to instruct people who are rich. It says, instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 6 again, which you see there. Number three, pursue righteousness rather than riches. This theme came through again and again and again in our study. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in steal, break in and steal or steal. Here's a fun one. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes upon it, it is gone. 
for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. We have a more modern saying that says, money talks, and it usually says, goodbye. <laughs> Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Number four, we're called to diligence and planning in both gaining income and in our giving. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. So it behooves us to think through our giving and uh, be very prayerful about what we do with our finances. Now concerning the collection for the saints, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. This was Paul to the Corinthians in a relief effort for the saints uh, in Jerusalem. But there's some good principles there of putting things aside. John Wesley said, get all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And any of you who have read about his life knows that he walked out that principle, gave away a tremendous amount of money, and made a tremendous amount of money. There is a call to righteous dealings with money. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. It's the pursuit of death. A false scale is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And then this, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? Isn't that a powerful verse? So something about how we tap into the true riches of Christ in the spiritual arena are somehow tied to being faithful with money. Of course, there's this theme, devote your first fruits to the Lord. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Leviticus 27.30. And then this, this passage from Malachi 3.10 that we're familiar with, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not pour open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until it overflows. Now, I was thinking about this driving here this morning, and I was thinking about how, how blanket a statement that is. It was made to Israel. Uh, I'm aware of the context. But I believe tithing, I personally believe tithing is a responsibility even in the New Testament and we go beyond. Um, now, I know we struggle to tithe at times. We have difficult life circumstances. But, but think if God made some concessions in this verse, how it would read. It might read like this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse unless, of course, you're not 18 yet. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, unless, of course, you're a minister. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, unless, of course, you're a single parent. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, unless, of course, uh, you're a missionary. 
bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, unless, of course, you're a student. Do you see how it would just, there would be so many ways to caveat this or to rationalize this, and yet the Lord doesn't, doesn't give us any of those. So I want to challenge, challenge you to think about that. Just to talk about ministers for a minute, I want to turn to Numbers 18.26. Something very interesting I found. It says, uh, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Isn't that interesting? So ministers who make their living by the gospel, if, if, if you apply, if you carry this verse over to today, um, there's a pretty strong case to make that that's not an exception. Very interesting. Number seven is give expecting nothing in return. These are the words of Jesus, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. Luke 6.35, we give knowing the inevitable blessings of giving, the Rockefeller hypothesis, but not exploiting that reality to get for personal gain. That's where I think many ministers of the gospel go wrong, is uh, they, they want to, to get for personal gain. And James 4 speaks very clearly about that. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So um, an example is Dr. Rutland at ORU. How many of you have heard, I've heard several times from several ORU people that every chapel now, he is taking an offering for missions for an overseas project that has no benefit to ORU. It's not feeding any of their programs, and he's, he's saying it is just healthy to give. It is just healthy to give, expecting nothing in return. And uh, I, it seems from my sense of those who have been telling me that this is a tremendously refreshing perspective to them. Luke 6.38 is not saying give to get, but let your standard of giving be generous and you will be rewarded. And then this tricky one, guard your heart from idolizing money. Uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. What a great phrase, pierced themselves with many a pang. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. And then you might also write down Luke 16, 13. That's the verse about having two masters. And Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11. It's a verse that says money just doesn't satisfy. Watch out for debt. 
He who is surety or co-signs on a loan for a stranger will surely suffer for it. I know many parents who've co-signed for children and certainly suffered for it. But he who hates going surety is safe. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. That, that phrase is really sticking in my mind these days um, because of our situation nationally. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then the last one, our attitude when we give is important too, isn't it? Let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. In other words, give willingly, for God loves a cheerful giver. So cheerful and willingly and purposefully, this is how we are to give. Let it be, Lord. Let it be. Okay, briefly, just some application points. I want to say this morning that we can break the mold. And by that I mean whether you're married with children, married without children, a single mom, a religious conservative, a religious liberal, welfare poor, working poor, we can break the demographic mold and uh, what traditionally those groups give. We can do above and beyond that. The working poor break the mold, don't they? They really break the mold. And um, there was this man, I want to read you just a brief story, called the forklift philanthropist. Anybody heard of him before? The forklift philanthropist. Dorothy, you heard of him. Um, This man's name was Mattel Dawson, Jr. He was born in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1921. He was the fifth of seven children in a poor family. He dropped out of school after the eighth grade and to go to work. Shreveport didn't have any jobs, though, so he moved up north and went to work for, in Detroit for the Ford Motor Company. He worked for Ford for more than 60 years, retiring at 81 as a forklift operator. From the beginning of his life at Ford, excuse me, his life at Ford was a common kind of American success story. He worked long hours. He often skipped vacations. I don't believe in that. He invested in Ford's employee stock plan, and by the end of his career, he was earning $100,000 a year. Charmingly, he attributed his prosperity to the grace of Almighty God and the Ford Motor Company. Um, The unexpected part of his story is he gave nearly all of his money away. During his life, he contributed $1.3 million to charity. You know, 680,000 to Wayne State, 300,000 to Louisiana State, 240,000 to the United Negro College Fund. He also contributed thousands to his church, other schools. He was dubbed the forklift philanthropist. He went to visit uh, President Clinton uh, at the White House. When journalists asked him why he gave so much, he said simply, I just want to help people. I just want to leave a legacy. I just want to be remembered. This is a man who uh, broke the mold and uh, just is a good inspirational story for us. 
Second, we can leave the gleanings in our lives or practice that principle. Do you remember in Israel how the Lord told the people when they harvested a field to leave the gleanings or to not, not harvest right out to the edge of the field so the poor could come and, um, and get some food and some nourishment and live? And uh, again, previous, our college and career group was asking, well, how can we apply that to our day? Are there ways that we can apply that? And I I thought of several ways. Uh, One is I was thinking about loose change and how MEND, for example, does the baby bottle uh, collection. That's a bit, that's kind of change can be viewed maybe as our gleanings in some way. And Laura reminded me that as we pay with cards more and more and more or electronically that we probably are dealing with less and less change Um, and that was just an interesting thing to think about Uh, I know someone who did a garage sale in other words they took the gleanings of their personal possessions did a garage sale and gave the entire proceeds to the little lighthouse tremendous idea um, yesterday, Laura and I, or Saturday, yeah, Saturday, we went to the Home and Garden Show, and there was a woman there named Sue Whitney. How many of you know Sue Whitney, the junk market? She started a, a business called the Junk Market, where she turns junk, she's an avid junk collector, and turns those things into home decorations and gifts and so on. But, you know, it's not only about money. Uh, we can give the gleanings of our lives in terms of volunteering. Um, it's hard for me not to think of Dave uh, over the years, how he has, you know, he and Beth ha- have not, uh, as teachers in Tulsa, Oklahoma, have not been off the, the charts in terms of wealth. Uh, and yet what Dave and Beth do is they, they volunteer. They give not only money, but they volunteer a lot of their time. And how many of you have been moved, uh, helped, you know, move from a residence by, by Dave and Beth, and uh, tremendous how we can give. And you remember how uh, the book was saying that volunteering actually adds to happiness and health. Uh, what a tremendous example. A third application is we can live out the Rockefeller hypothesis. You may say, well, Jim, I don't have a ton of money to uh, devote to a salad dressing business uh, for at-risk kids. Um, But I want to tell you that by participating in a a personal entrepreneurial endeavor like Kids Hope, you actually are perpetuating and, and walking in that Rockefeller hypothesis. For example, let me play it out for you. Let's say you go to, uh, you're tutoring a child one hour a week, and because of your investment in that child's life, let's say it's a boy, he learns to read. Because he learns to read, he feels a success, he feels competent in his culture and in his society, and so he goes on to get his high school education, maybe a college education, and then he has a family. And because he's not in prison and He can read, he gets a decent job, and he provides for his kids, he loves his kids, maybe they come to Christ. And um, maybe the whole family comes to Christ, but even if not, 
um, his kids see him being generous and giving, and they become generous and giving. And so you see, um, just by investing yourself and your time and your love in someone, you can enter into that reciprocal cycle of prosperity and charity, if not for yourself, at least for someone else. We can be faithful to tithe and go beyond that. Um, just want to tell a brief story here. There was a time when Laura and I and the four kids were down to $13 in our checkbook. Um, I was leaving the house in the morning, not sure how I was going to make some money that day. I remember one day I rented a stump grinder and I drove around uh, neighborhoods and looked for stumps and then I'd knock on the door and say to the owner, I'll grind that stump up for $20 or something like that. And it, the cost of the grinder was $100 for the day. And I worked hard that day. And when I got the grinder back to ABC Rental up here on 15th Street, um, I had made $105. So I had $5. And I was kind of laughing about that. Uh, but um, somewhere in there, uh, we were down to $13, and um, I just remember thinking, you know, we got to eat, and what do we do? And I had a desire for pizza, and I, this tremendous peace came over me that it would be okay. And um, so we walked with the kids. We lived on Knoxville at that time, near Admiral and Harvard. And we walked up to what at that time was Ken's Pizza on the corner, and, and we ate. I don't know if I, we, I used that last 13 or if what we ate took it down to 13. But, um, but anyway, the next day in the mail, I had this tremendous piece. And Laura and I have always you know, practiced tithing and, and done our best. And uh, uh, or tried to do our best. And so, anyway, in the mail that day was a $600 check from some work I'd done six years before in northern Minnesota. Um, never expected to see that money. The man who sent me the check was, was quite an alcoholic. And I just thought, I, you know, I had written off that money long ago. He looks us in the eye and he says, test me, test me, and see if I won't pour out a blessing that you can't contain. The last one is we can guard our hearts from the love of money, amen? Frankly, sometimes I've struggled with this. We can think too much about money, whether we are struggling or whether we are in a time of plenty. Uh, we can confuse riches with true wealth. Amen? Uh, let's use our mammon to serve our God. And let's excel still more. Hallelujah. I want to pray, pray for us um, that we would do just that, that we would excel still more. I know that many of you are struggling financially, some are without work, but Father, we just 
give ourselves over to you as living sacrifices. We pray, Father, that um, you would order our steps and that in this area of giving, you would, you would show us how to maximize our kingdom impact. Help us not to be afraid, Lord, but to walk in faith even when it's tough, no matter what state our finances are in. We pray that we would be generous givers and that our attitudes would be right. We pray for those who don't have work right now. We just acknowledge, Lord, that a gift, that a job is a gift from you. And uh, so we pray for Brian, Lord, that you would bring even better work his way. We thank you for what you've provided, but we pray that you will, you will honor and bless our brother and, and give him the gift of a great job. We pray the same for Andy, Lord. Thank you for, thank you for he and Dorothy's uh, ability to stand in the midst of this adversity. We pray, as has already been prayed this service, that you would bring Andy a job this week. Thank you for the leads he has, but Lord, we pray you would guide him to that perfect job. We, we cry out for others, Lord, who are underemployed, those who have lost maybe Friday of their work week. They've had their hours cut. Father, we pray that you would make up the difference, either supernaturally or providing work for them on those, those days when their, their normal employment is not open for business. Father, we pray that we might excel still more in the area of giving and in every area of our lives. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.